one of the things when you talk about the unseen world, uh, you're talking about something that is, you know, out there somewhere. I mean, it could be right here next to us. It's outside my flesh, my body. That's the, there's an unseen world there. Uh, there's an unseen world in more remote places. And even the, the world itself, people are looking at these, this whole concept or idea of what might be you know, out there. Uh, they call it, I think the, probably the most common term to use is a parallel universe. And many think that there's a universe out there that runs parallel along with the actual life that we're li living here. And it, and it runs in parallel to it. Now, of course, there's, it's, it's nothing but theory. Uh, you know, and there are people who think that you can't even explore such a thing. If you go on the internet to the website space.com, there's an article there all about it. And you can read a lot of the things. And I'm going to share just a few things that they say there. Um, but they say here, our universe may live in one bubble that is sitting in a network of bubble universes, plural, in space. From science fiction to science fact, there is a concept that suggests that there could be other universes besides our own, where all the choices you made in this life are played out in alternate realities. In other words, somewhere out there, it's all being played out again. The concept is known as a parallel universe, and, and it's, a, it's a, something that those in, in astronomy and in physics explore in a very real way. Now, of course, the problem is, is that with the material universe and the limitations of science, you know, how do you get or how do you jump over from the physical universe that we can measure with time and distance and so on, and how do you get over to this other universe? What's the process? And people in quantum physics are, you know, feverishly looking for ways to do that through science. This idea of parallel universes is very, very big, bigger than you know. But you just ask somebody who's about anywhere from 8 to 15 or 20 years old, or even in, up to 30, and believe me, they know a lot about what I'm speaking of here this morning. As a matter of fact, they list here five different uh, possibilities for this universe, these multiverses that are out there, an infinite universe, a bubble universe, daughter universes. I don't know why we don't have son universes, but we got daughter ones listed here. Mathematical universes and parallel universes. It's very real. But it's going to be even more real as we open the scriptures and we see what God's word has to say about that unseen world that's out there. If you want to learn more about it, you want to, want to know where the most popular places you can go? Anybody know? Comic books. Comic books. They're filled with it. They tell us here that Marvel Comics and DC Comics feature stories set in parallel universes that are part of the multiverse. 
Um, there are anime series, that's some kind of a Japanese uh, animation, uh, called Digimon, Dragon Ball, Sonic the Hedgehog, and so on. There are other parallel universes uh, that appear in, in online games. You may not even know your kids are involved in it. They have such names as Dungeons and Dragons, Bioshock Infinite, Final Fantasy, Half-Life, League of Legends, Mortal Kombat, I've heard of that one, and The Legend of Zelda, <laughs> I've never heard of that one. Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions, uh, it's a book. And they have uh, uh, others here, books and comic books, uh, movies, um, <clears throat> one called His Dark Materials, another one, Back to the Future, I think we probably most of us have heard of that one. Uh, Men Like Gods, H.G. Wells, back in 1923, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. You know, that's a parallel universe that they enter into. Timeline, Donnie Darko, The Long Earth, and, and more. So all I'm saying is, this is what we're going to be talking about is nothing unusual. People are wanting to know, what is this life here all about? And they want to find the reality by getting over into this other realm, this other world, this other place, this other universe, besides and runs parallel to ours, or so many think. I was listening to the radio earlier this week, and I, I, I don't listen to the radio much at all anymore. I used to listen to it all the time, uh, Christian programs and so on, and, and I now just once in a while when I'm driving down the road, I'll turn it on, and I happen to come upon a message by a person who happens to be local here, and uh, the speaker was focused on Deuteronomy chapter 6, of all places. And that is a very, should be at least a very familiar passage, verses 1 through 4, speaking about what we commonly know as the Shema in verse 4, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And you know the verse well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, as it says it in the King James Version. The um, New King James says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It just reverses it. Um, and if you wanted to be very literal about this passage, it says, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Or Yahweh, our Elohim is one Yahweh. And the point that, of course, that he's making here that many misconstrue is that there is only one Yahweh. There can be no other. And the scriptures are very explicit and very clear about who Yahweh is. And, of course, we know him as uh, the God of all creation. We know him as the God of Israel. And he is the God we worship. Him alone and none other. The concordant version, the Geneva translation, as, long as, as well as the Tyndall translation, 
all state it this way. Hear, Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh, and I'm reading it exactly the way it's translated, Yahweh, the only one. Now, what you want to note there is he's not saying he's the only God. It's saying Yahweh is the only one. There is no other Yahweh besides him. Um, the idea, Kyle and Delich, in their commentary, state this. The idea is not Yahweh, our Elohim, is one Elohim, but one Yahweh. I was surprised, to be honest with you, to find that in any commentary at all. But they, that's exactly what they say. Barnes, in his commentary, says, This weighty text asserts that Yahweh Elohim of Israel is absolutely God and none other. He and he alone is Yahweh, the absolute, uncaused Elohim. Now, you think that through. He is the only God, none other. He and he alone is Yahweh, the absolute, uncaused Elohim, the one who had by his election of Israel made himself known to them. So the point of the Shema then is that Yahweh then is Israel's Elohim. Now what we'll discover and find out is there are many Elohim referred to in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the word itself is a plural, Elohim. When you see any Hebrew word that ends in I am, it's talking about plurality. And so Elohim is, by very nature of its own definition, is a, a plural of gods with an S. So there's no other God besides him. And when Yahweh states that he was Yahweh in the scriptures and beside him there is none else, he's not stating that there is no other Elohim. He's simply making it emphatically clear that there is no other Yahweh. That's the point we want to get across. That's the point that the Shema is stating to us. There is none other, no Yahweh besides him. He's unique. He created the earth, the seas, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the animal kingdom, and us. There is no other Yahweh that can do that because there is no other Yahweh. There is no other Elohim that can do this. Yahweh is unique in the scriptures. Now, I'm going to be reading this morning, unfortunately, from several different translations. It was amazing me as I was studying that I had to go to so many different ones, but each one had a different nuance, and it was exactly what I was looking for. So that's what we got today. The New English translation over in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18 says this, For this is what Yahweh says, the one who created the sky, or the King James and other translations would say the heavens, he is the true God, the one who formed the earth and made it. Now notice it says Yahweh did this. He did not create it without order. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. I, I like the translation here. I have no peer. That is, there is, if, if, if I'm Yahweh, there is nobody standing right here beside me. When he says there is none other besides me, he means right there. Nobody my equal. 
I am unique and alone. And I alone created all things. I have not spoken in secret in some hidden place. I did not tell Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. In other words, when Yahweh said to Israel that they should seek after the Lord, to seek after Yahweh, it was not in vain, without any point or any value, or it wasn't a useless thing. It had purpose to it. He says, I am Yahweh, the one who speaks honestly and who makes reliable announcements. Now, of course, other translations state it more, more in a literal sense, uh, that I speak the truth and so on. So this, this translation of the New King James here, along with, by, by the way, all other translations that I'm aware of, make it clear that there is no other Yahweh in existence, period. And I want to be emphatic about that. Now, this messenger I was talking about on the radio made the common mistake that many make in saying that there is no other God, no other Elohim, period. In other words, if we were to go from here out to the unseen world, that unseen realm out there where this parallel universe that everyone's looking for, and you began to look around, you would only find Yahweh, and that's it. Now, of course, they haven't thought that through because they would all say, well, we believe in angels. We all believe in angels. But the problem is the angels are called Elohim. So you cannot say that there are no other Elohim. There are many, and we're just going to be looking at uh, a couple of them today. And we'll, we will be exploring that further as time goes on. So we want to look at this distinction between the word Elohim and the word Yahweh. Yahweh, as I stated last week, and as I have come to want to use frequently, is because that is God's name. And it sets him apart and distinguishes him from all other Elohim. And to just say, Lord, muddies the issue. And it causes us to read it without even thinking about what we're reading. And you might remember several weeks ago, I was preaching through, uh, not through, but preaching in the book of Deuteronomy. And I noted when we were there that over, over 300 times in that one book, God tells Israel, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. And there's a reason he did that. It's because they were about to embark on a journey into the land of Canaan and fight other gods, other Elohim. It wasn't just enemies that were occupying cities and towns that they were engaging, but it was other gods. And we will look at that as we move on. I struggled <clears throat> quite a bit with where to start. Where do you begin? And I could only come up with one place, and that was 
Psalm 82. I kept coming back to that. So I want you to turn there, please. Psalm 82 and begin with verse 1. And I'm starting to get a little raspy here this morning for some reason. Psalm 82 and verse, verse 1. Now, it's an interesting psalm, and we have been, have been and we did study this on Wednesday night uh, extensively, and for a good reason. And the first verse there says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And one of the things that we should notice immediately in that verse is the fact that there is God and gods, plural, mentioned in the same verse. And so as you explore that, if you, get, if you just look in your concordance or uh, on your Bible study program, you'll find out that the word God and the word gods in Hebrew is the same word. It's Elohim. So why did they translate one as singular and the other one as plural? How do they make the, the distinction? Well, it's actually quite simple because this uh, verbal phrase, well, in the New King James, it stand, it's, it's translated stands in. Um, it's, it's, it's singular. And so if you want subject and verb agreement, and we all know that's the way you do grammar, they have to agree, then that means the first Elohim mentioned here has to be singular as well. And so it's translated as God. If you come to the last one, translated gods, you, you notice it says he stands in the congregation or some translations say in the midst of the con congregation or the some would say the divine assembly or some say the divine council, or some just say assembly, or the congregation of the mighty, or the company. Some translate it this company. God stands in the congregation, the company, the council, the divine assembly of the mighty, and he judges among the gods. Now, the point of that is then is you can't stand in or among or in the midst of one thing. You can't stand in the midst of me. I'm one. You have to have multiple beings to stand in the midst of them. And so consequently, the word God's there, uh, which is Elohim, is, is translated in the plural. And you'll see this frequently, frequently throughout the scriptures to make this distinction between the singular Elohim and the multiple Elohim. And as we stated just a moment ago in the book of Deuteronomy, as well as many, many other places in the scriptures, God repeatedly calls himself Yahweh, your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. So when you see those words in your English translation, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, or if it's capital G, capital O, capital D, as it is occasionally, then you know immediately that's the word Yahweh. 
Now, if you see the word God in lowercase, or even God, capital G, with a lower O, case O, and a lowercase d, then you have to look it up to see exactly what Hebrew word it is, because there are two or three other words that could be translated as God. So the point of it all is then, is that there is a reason why there is a distinction being made here about God standing in the midst of, or among, as some translations say it, the mighty, or the mighty ones, or some even would translate it the gods, although that's not the correct translation. But the rest of the verse, he judges among the gods, would be correct. He judges among the gods. Now, why is he doing this? Well, as you go on to read in, in this uh, psalm, you'll find out that God is disturbed over some of their activity. And they have been acting unjustly in the responsibilities that God has assigned to them. And so consequently, they're under judgment. Now, some translations or some commentators especially like to identify these as angels, uh, some, which would be okay. Some would say they're, that they're just men. But I don't think that's the case. If you just skip down to verse 6, You'll notice he says there, I said, you are gods. After he has set his case against them in verses two through five for their unjust activities, he tells them, I said, you are gods. You are Elohim. And all of you are children of the Most High. Well, that Most High would be that singular Elohim or as we will find out later, Yahweh. Notice though, he says, you are children of the Most High. You know, when you talk about a parallel universe, if you're talking about another out there, wherever, unseen world, it's interesting, you know, that God makes it very clear and plain that there is a world out there. And not only is there a world out there that we cannot see, nor can we travel to, yet God has a family there. God has a multitude of creatures, beings that he has created that exist in the heavens or in this unseen world. And here he calls them children of the Most High. And by the way, the fact that you know they cannot be men in verse 6 or 7, notice he says, as a result of their nefarious activity, of their rebellion against Yahweh, he says, you shall die like men. Well, you can't die like a man if you're already a man. I mean, you, you die because you are a man. But he says, you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And then in the last verse, the psalmist ends on a note of praise and a positive thinking where he says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. That tells us something about where God is headed and what his plan is and what he's going to do. 
So, Elohim, singular as well as plural. Now, as we move on, Psalm 80, uh, excuse me, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. When we ask, still ask the question, who are these heavenly beings then? Well, just turning to Psalm 89, and we notice in verse 7, a peculiar verse where it says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly. Now, you see the word assembly? That's the same word back over there in Psalm 82 that they translated congregation. But it's an assembly. It's a gathering. You can't have a gathering of one. You have a gathering of multiple people or multiple beings. And so in this particular case, he says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Yahweh Elohim of hosts, plural. That's multiple people. Who is mighty like you, O Yahweh? The psalmist again is making it very clear who he's speaking of here. But notice in verse 6, he says, For who in the heavens? This is the scene. This is the location of what he's talking about. Who in the heavens, out there, in the sky, in that unseen world, who can be compared to Yahweh? And notice the word compared. It's a, it's, it's a comparison. If you take all the Elohim, the, in other words, in that unseen world, and you want to compare them to Yahweh, he says, nobody can be compared to me. That's it. Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to Yahweh? Rather, he is to be feared, he says, in the assembly of the saints or the assembly of the holy ones. These in, in the heavens. Now, um, we're going to move on because, because of time, as usual. Um, if we turn to Psalm 29... I'm going to skip over a few things. Oh, I don't want to skip over the... Let me, let's look at that word in, in verse 7. Psalm 89 here in verse 7. Notice at the end of the verse, it says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those... Notice that word, around him. Or maybe your translation says all those about him. If you look that word up, the primary meaning of that word is a circle. So when he talks about those around him, he's talking about Yahweh being encircled by lesser beings, but also called Elohim, just like he is called an Elohim. But a clear distinction is made between Yahweh as an Elohim and all the rest of these lesser beings that encircle his throne. And of course, just the whole idea of imagining in your mind God's throne with all these heavenly creatures surrounding his throne, that there is multitudes of them, and they can only be lesser than him if they surround his throne. 
And by the way, there is no other Elohim who has a throne with Elohim surrounding that one. There is no other. He says, there is none other besides me. And that's what the Shema declared. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, is the only one. And you'll see that translation frequently. Now, in Psalm 29, Psalm 29, it's a Psalm of David. And you wonder, well, did any of these Israelites, you know, understand this? Did they believe this? Well, David certainly did. In Psalm 29 and verse 1, it says, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, that is, you sons of God. Give unto the Lord, to Yahweh, glory and strength. Give unto Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship the Lord, or Yahweh, in the beauty of holiness. What is David saying here? David is ascribing to Yahweh glory and strength, and he's appealing to these mighty ones, these sons of God, or these sons of the mighty ones, he says, are you mighty ones, to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh. In other words, he is appealing to this heavenly scene that we're talking about of those encircling God's throne, and he's appealing to them to worship Yahweh, to be in subjection to him, to give glory and honor to his name, which is Yahweh. So it's important. And David, I don't think, could make it any clearer. It's like he's looking into the throne room. He's got his spy glasses on, as it were. And he's looking into that heavenly throne room and he's observing these sons of God or these mighty ones around God's throne. And he's David in his prayer. He's appealing to them to give praise and honor and glory to, to Yahweh, the superior one, even though he's called an Elohim himself. You look at the opening verse of Scripture. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Well, who is that Elohim? Well, here he is. He declares later on exactly who he is and what his name is. Um, you won't have time to turn here, but there's, I'm going to read several other passages that speak of the same thing. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, it says there, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods, among the Elohim? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and doing wonders? And of course, it's a self-answering rhetorical question. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. And you all know what a rhetorical question is. It's just a, it's a question that's so obvious it answers itself. Who's greater than Yahweh? Nobody. Nobody. Psalm 86, verse 8 says, Among the Elohim there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Psalm 95, verse 3, Yahweh is the great God and the great king above all gods, all other Elohim. Psalm, verse 4, 
in, uh, excuse me, Psalm 96 and verse 4, Yahweh is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 97, verse 7, let's, let, let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods, you Elohim, for you, Yahweh, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all Elohim. Psalm 136, verse 2 says, O oh, give thanks to the God of gods, the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 138, it's another Psalm of David. David says, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods, before the other Elohim, I will sing praises to you, Yahweh. Deuteronomy chapter 32, I think is a fascinating verse, uh, verse 17. And if you want to turn there, we'll spend a few moments on it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 17. Here you remember, here the scene, uh, the generation that had died off was gone. The wilderness generation is now standing on the shore uh, of the Jordan, getting ready to cross over into the land of Canaan. And Moses, throughout this uh, book of Deuteronomy, was warning this generation about the things to come and about being loyal to Yahweh, your Elohim. In verse 17, it says there, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. To gods, to Elohim, he says, they had never known. Now, what you do is you, th you think about that verse now. They, who's the they? Well, he's talking about the generation that had died out in the wilderness. And he's telling this new generation standing on the shore there, he says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Where did they do that? Back in Egypt. Back in Egypt, they were exposed to multiple Elohim, multiple gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And he says there, they sacrificed to them, he says, to Elohim they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So he was warning this, this generation uh, to beware of these very demons. You beware of them. You see, they sacrificed to other gods back there in Egypt, but these demons I'm talking about, they, don't, they didn't know a thing about them. But you're about to encounter them when you go over into the land of Canaan. And I want you to beware of what's to come. They were new gods, he says. New Elohim that your fathers didn't know anything about. Now, it's interesting. If you turn to first, keep your finger here, but go to, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20. And you might wonder, well, did anybody else? What about in the New Testament? Did they believe in these things? Well, I think Paul makes it abundantly clear, and we'll be exploring that more later on. But one verse we want to look at today, 
And that is 1 Corinthians, well, don't forgive me there. We're going to look at some more verses, but I'm going to try to go quickly. He says in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. The things which the Gentiles, that is, in Paul's day, it was the Gentiles or surrounding the nation of Israel. In Moses' day, it was the ones over there in the land of Canaan. My point is, is that those demons in existence at the time they were on the shore there getting ready to go into the land of Canaan are the same demons that were existing in Paul's day hundreds of years later. Now you say, well, how in the world do you know that? Well, I can tell you one thing. You know, the Septuagint uses the same word for demons here in Deuteronomy 32 that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10. Daimonion. Now, I know your King James says devils, but it's the word for demons. It's daimonion. Demonion. Demons. Liddell, Scott, and Jones in their Greek lexicon says this word, demon, means now listen to this, a divine power or a deity, a being inferior to God. So they're inferior to God, but they're still a divine being, a deity, an Elohim. So Paul believed these demons were real. And you and I should too. Over in Acts um, where was it? I think I've got a note here about it. Yeah, over in Acts 17, Paul's over in Athens, Greece, and, he, uh, and he's, he's speaking to this, the uh, philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And in verse 17, uh, 16, I'll get it, verse 18, Acts chapter 17, verse 18, it says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Uh, one person said that word babbler, the literal translation there means a seed picker. <laughs> this guy, he's picking around here about some peculiar things. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Now notice how they translated that. It's the same word demons. He seems to be talking about foreign demons or foreign deities. Somebody that they had not been introduced to, apparently. But notice what it says. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Boy, they sure didn't get it. But the picture here, the point of it all is, the picture that the scripture is giving to us is decidedly and very precisely presenting to us is that there is a clear distinction between Yahweh and the other heavenly beings called Elohim. And they are the ones who encircle or surround his throne. They call them, now, the general overarching team uh, for all of these beings is Elohim. But later on, we're going to find out they're called by some more specific names. But we've already seen uh, sons of the mighty. 
We've already seen them called sons of the Most High. We've seen them called holy ones. We've seen them called gods with a little g. So Elohim, therefore, the point is, exist where they do not have material bodies. And that is the thing you need to nail down, is that those, mater those beings that exist in this unseen world, what makes them an Elohim is that they do not have a body like we have, a body of flesh. They are spirit beings. And the Bible calls them gods. And hopefully then, in our next study as we progress on, we're going to look at other Elohim, Lord willing. But I want to leave you with the thought, be sure that you regard them as being very real. King David said they were real. Paul said they were, were real. Moses believed it. Joshua believed it. And a multitude of Israelites understood what they were up against. Well, let me just say, there's more to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have had the truth revealed to us and that we know that there is no other God that we are to bow down to, that we are to worship, that we are to give praise and honor and glory to, but Yahweh. And we thank you, Father, that you reign supreme in the heavens. And as the scripture says, you are Lord over all the earth. There in Joshua chapter 3. And that there is none besides you. None that can compare to you, Father. Oh, how happy and full of joy we are to be able to bow before such an one who is righteous and holy, who speaks the truth, who is full of compassion, who cares about the poor and the needy, and the widows, and the orphans. Lord, help us to be aware of that so that we might do the same. So that as we saw there in Genesis chapter 1, you told us there that we are made in your image, that we are here to be your representatives. Oh God, let us walk that way and talk that way, act that way to be what we ought to be as we walk before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.